my favorite movies are the ones where I get most tense right in the middle. Where there's that moment, that conflict, where you just don't know how it will turn out. You have a movie like that, maybe? Maybe a storyline where there just is that moment where who knows the way it's going to turn out. I know in, uh, in yeah, I'm not going to give you all the movies. You have movies, I have movies. Let's not go forever on this sermon. I mean, I could go for another five minutes and start telling you about all these movies that I like. Okay, but you know what it feels like. All right. Like Toy Story. You know in Toy Story when Butt when Butt falls out of the window? Or Woody gets taken? Oh, you, you get it. Okay. It was just one of the ones I was thinking of. All right. Today we're going to have kind of one of those moments where it gets a little tense. That's really all I wanted to do was say that today it's going to be a bit tense. This sermon is, is that, that sermon that we really don't like to hear. It's that one that comes real close to hellfire and brimstone. That one that, that no one really just wants to sit and listen to because maybe our toes will get stepped on. But we've got to do it because that's exactly where the passage will take us this morning. So we've been in a, we've been in a sermon series walking through this three-part song, Psalm 104, 105, and 106. And every week we've looked at that summary of what this song, this three-part song, uh, is about. So let's take a look. Uh, again, let's just take the review. Psalm 104, 105, and 106 uh, make up a three-part song that tells about God's greatness in creation, His faithfulness to His people, the wickedness of their rebellion, and the hope of salvation. Want to take a guess where the tension is? Yeah. Yeah. It's in that third, that third piece, that wickedness of their rebellion. There it is. And so that's the thing we've got to deal with because that's where the text takes us this morning. We have looked at how God is our sustainer. He is the creator and sustainer. We've looked at how the Lord is faithful. He's even faithful in our waiting, in our suffering. But this week we've got to deal with confession. We've got to talk about confession. Because once we step into Psalm 106, we move into a part of the psalm where the people of God have to confess their sin. It's part of the song. It's a really uncomfortable part of the song. But we have to sing it. Remember, we are looking at how Israel sang their story so that maybe we learn something about how we sing our story as Christians. And I think there's a lot we can learn even here in this large section of confession. I'm hoping that we, like a movie, step into this really tense moment, but maybe we walk out of it even better than when we started. So here we go. Psalm 106, it's a long passage. Remember, I promised you we'd be reading a lot of Bible, and today will be no different. We're going to read most of Psalm 106. We'll start with the praise, and then we'll read most of the content of this, song, uh, of this part of the song. Psalm 106, start with verse 1. Praise the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, His love endures forever. Who can proclaim the mighty acts of the Lord or fully declare His praise? Blessed are those who act justly, who always do what is right. Remember the Lord when you show favor to your people. Come to my aid when you save them. But I may rejoice, I may enjoy the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may share in the joy of your nation, enjoying your inheritance and giving praise. Verse 6. We have sinned, even our ancestors did. We have done wrong and acted wickedly. When our ancestors were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many, your, your many kindnesses. 
And they rebelled at the sea, the Red Sea. Drop down to verse 13. They soon forgot what he had done. And he did not wait for his plan to unfold. In the desert they gave in to their craving. In the wilderness they put God to the test. And so he gave them what they asked for. But sent a wasting disease among them. In the camp they grew envious of Moses and Aaron. It was consecrated to the Lord, and the earth opened up and swallowed Datham. It buried the company of Abiram. Fire blazed among their followers. A, fire, a flame consumed the wicked. At Horeb, they made a cast, and they worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull which eats grass. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt, miracles in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. So he said he would destroy them, and had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. And then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his promise. They grumbled in their tents, and they did not obey the Lord. So he swore to them with uplifted hand that he would make them fall in the wilderness, make their descendants fall among the nations, and then scatter them throughout the lands. They yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. And they ate sacrifices offered to lifeless gods. They aroused the Lord's anger by their wicked deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Chapter verse 32. By the waters of Meribah, they, they angered the Lord, and trouble came to Moses because of them. They rebelled against the Spirit of God, and rash words came from Moses' lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the, Lord's, as the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the nations, and they adopted their customs. They worshipped their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to false gods. And they shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was desecrated by their blood. They defiled themselves by what they did. By their deeds, they prostituted themselves. Therefore, the Lord was angry with his people and abhorred his inheritance. He gave them into the hands of the nations, and their foes ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and subjected them to their power, and many times he delivered them. But they were bent on rebellion, and they wasted away in their sin. We'll just stop there for this morning. Stop there, verse 43. There's a lot going on there. There's a, there's a, there's a lot of content in that confession. I see three things, just three points I want to pull out. Of all those verses, here it is. So we're going to put it on the screen. I see a rejection of God's goodness, idol worship, and God's wrath. Those are three big points right there. So we'll just take them in order. Okay, take them in order. So if we just look at the, the rejection of, of God's goodness, what happens in the confession is they actually review the history. And they review these moments back in the wilderness when the people had been delivered from Israel, uh, from Egypt, when they actually rejected God's salvation. And they kind of walk through four different scenes. Now what the psalm does is it takes the scene and it summarizes it poetically. What I want to do is go back into those scenes and look at exactly what the people said. And just see how close it comes to the way maybe we talk sometimes. So that first scene is between verses 13 and 15. So Psalm 106, 13 through 15. That's the moment where the people have a faithless craving for food. 
And in Numbers 11, just take a look at exactly what they said. Remember, they've been rescued from Egypt, the land of slavery. They now are moving to the promised land, but they got hungry. Here's what they say, Numbers 11, 4 and 6. The rabble with them began to crave other food, and again the Israelites started wailing, and they said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna, this food that God gave them. You really think they were eating cucumbers down in Egypt? Really? They had some historical amnesia here. Uh, the grass looked greener on the other side. The problem was they lived on the other side, but all of a sudden it became a land of cucumbers and melons and garlic. No, they were making bricks. They were making bricks, hard labor. Their children were being killed or taken. There was a whole, there was a whole moment where thousands, maybe tens of thousands of babies were being killed. No, there wasn't cucumbers and melons. But in that moment, in their lack of faith, in their rejection of God's goodness, they start complaining. Don't you remember when we had it great? They rejected God's goodness. All right. Take a look at this next thing. Number 16, verse 13. These two men come. They complain about Moses and his authority, the person God appointed. And God says, fine, if you want to complain, you come, come to the, we're, going to, we're going to meet at the front of the, 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 um, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and we're going to deal with this. And here's what these two guys say when they're told to meet at the front of the tabernacle. Isn't it enough that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, and now you also want to lord it over us? So in their rejection of God's goodness, now they call the land of Egypt a land flowing with milk and honey. The land of slavery they now view as the place where they were thriving. And now they say God didn't bring them out. God didn't bring them out to save them. He actually brought them out to kill them. It's a rejection of God's goodness. Next scene, it's when we see the report from the ten spies. The ten spies, uh, the spies go into the land, and then ten of them, ten of them come back. Uh, there's twelve spies, but ten of them have this report. Numbers 13, 30 through, 31 through 33. They give this report because they had gone in to spy out the land, the promised land, and they say, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad, a bad report about the land that they had explored. And they said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are great size. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and looked the same to them. We can't go in there. God may have said you're going in, but these ten said, we can't. We're too small. We'll be eaten alive. That's a rejection of God's goodness. And from that point on, they begin to wander in the wilderness. They have rejected God's goodness too many times. And then one last scene. It's when the people come to Moses wanting water again. Not a bad thing to want, but they don't believe God will give it to them. They're rejecting God's goodness. And Moses, at that point, exasperated, believing he just can leverage his own power to make things happen, strikes a rock. Water comes out. But God's not happy because even Moses lacks trust. Even Moses rejects God's goodness. Here's the passage, Numbers 20, verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me 
enough to honor me as holy. In the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Now, each of those four scenes is summarized poetically in Psalm 106. But when we dig in the original context of the story from which those poetic summaries come, you can see that each moment they're rejecting God's goodness. It shouldn't surprise us because this is part of the human problem. In the beginning, God gave our parents, Adam and Eve, He gave them everything to enjoy, to eat, even to look at. But there was one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were not allowed to eat. And it was on that that the evil one came. The serpent moved into the garden. And what did he do? He questioned God's goodness. Did he really tell you that? No, no. He actually meant this because he knew this. You really can't trust him. And from the beginning, humans have struggled with believing God's really as good as he says he is. And that has led to a universal rejection in, in human history. That's a human problem, rejecting God. The one who gave us life, gives us breath, gives us all good things. Alright, let's move to that second point. We'll just take on idol worship. Five times in Psalm 106, in that part we read, the psalmist refers to idolatry. And two verses stand out. I'm going to pick up verse 20 and 37. They exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull which eats grass. And if that's not enough, they sacrificed their sons and daughters to false gods. Literally. They literally gave up their children in the fire to satisfy these gods. These are arbitrary gods. These are the gods of the Canaanites. They needed to be satisfied. Who knew when they would get mad again? So they gave over their children. Innocent blood. They just gave their children. And here in idolatry is a fundamental principle. We endowed with power, spirit. We were made to worship. What we do in idolatry is we give away that worship. We give away that power. We give away the adoration to something else. And do you know what happens when you give away worship? You give away your energy. You give away your adoration to something else other than God. You are left empty in the end. Because the only person that can give back, can reciprocate the giving, is God Himself. Because everyone else besides God is sourced by some other source. You didn't, get life by, you, you didn't give yourself life. Someone gave you life. The only person who has never received life from someone else is God. Theologians in centuries past call this the simplicity of God. Not that God is necessarily non-complex, but God does not need anyone else or anything else to exist. He is simply God. And so when you give your worship to something else, when you exchange the worship to the God who is over all the universe, you exchange the worship of Him for something else, you will be ultimately a person who is always giving out. Now, don't think the other gods don't give back something. Oh, they always give back something. But it doesn't last very long. You, we understand this in our day with the opioid epidemic, don't we? You give away your energy to those drugs. And they will give you something. Maybe for 20 minutes. Maybe for half a day. But in the end, they will leave you wanting. And what do you have to do? Go get more. And because when you give away your adoration, 
you are left a little bit more empty. So if you start, if you start at the top, and, and, and ultimately you drain yourself, by the time you get two years into opioids, you've got a lot more you've got to do to fill yourself back up. This works for anything else. It works for pornography. It works for uh, um, your reputation. That is, it wor- uh, for ambition. That's what I mean. It, it works for ambition. Anytime you are giving out, worshiping something else, even yourself, it will take more and more over time. And in the end, you'll be left a shell. Your career will never save you. Do good, but never put your life into it. That is, your worship. Your kids... Don't worship them. Don't worship them. Love them, but do not worship them. Only God gives back fully. Now, I'm not making all this up. This idea of exchanging the glorious God for a lifeless idol. I'm not making this up. The psalmist didn't even make this up. This is fundamental to the human experience. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, a man trained in the Scriptures. He understood this and summarizes it maybe better than anyone else in the Bible. Here's what he says, Romans 1, 21-25. For although they, they actually here refers to all of us, they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but in their thinking they became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals. And reptiles. In verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator. That's what happens. When you exchange, when you exchange your worship for Him who is infinite and full of life for that which is lifeless, you become what you worship and you will be left lifeless. And so we have to be very careful with idolatry. And in this song, and They are confessing this has been a big problem they've had throughout their history and even in their own day. All right, last one, God's wrath. Do you notice that Moses, there was a problem. The people worship the idol and then they begin, God decides he's going to destroy his people. Moses stands in the way and holds back God's wrath. Take a look. Just want to make sure we got that verse. Verse 23, Psalm 106. He said he would destroy them, and had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. This is not something we like to talk about. We, in our day, like to talk about God as full of love. Love, love, love. It's like rainbows and unicorns. Everything's good. Everything's fine. As long as, long as you're a good person, you're going to be fine. That's just not what we find in the Bible. And because I'm going to... I'm going to stand or maybe just kneel. I don't know. I'm going to be under the Bible. I have, I have to take this here for what it says. There is wrath. But as we've talked about, this is not God being mean as if He's arbitrary. As if He just goes around striking people with, light, you know, with lightning. He's not Zeus or Jupiter. He's not Hermes. He's not Hercules. He's not a God who just moves arbitrarily. He's a God who is holy and good. Remember, this is not God being mean. It's God dealing with rebellion. Take a look at one theologian says this. One theologian says this. He says, Wrath is the vengeance God takes towards all forms of wickedness. 
It is the right and righteous response of God to sin. It may sound, it may sound mean, but if any of you have a child, just let someone murder your child and let me watch your reaction. That is about as close as we probably can come to understanding righteous wrath. Probably about as close as we're going to get. Something so dear being taken so innocently. That's going to be about as close as we might be able to get. What person would look at a parent who had his child or her child murdered and say, stop being mean? No one would say that. We would understand that's a wrath that comes from a righteous place. That is the way God moves. Because we who were given life, we have rebelled. And we have rejected that life. And all of us understand that, fundamentally. That is a human problem. That's not a color problem. That's not a gender problem. That's a human problem. Paul says it this way. Interesting, right there in that passage we read, right before we, the, the Romans uh, 1, 21-25, he said this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. There's, Paul has no concept of God being mean here. It is God's justice. And so you and I have to understand, fundamentally, we have a rebellion problem. We have an idolatry problem. And we got a wrath problem. we got a wrath problem. And anyone that would reject that will ultimately, at some point, face reality. But this is what we see. And so what do you do with all this? Man, this is a heavy confession, isn't it? This is a heavy confession. Rejecting God's goodness, idolatry, and God's wrath. None of that is fun to talk about. And that is heavy. And so, I think it has something to teach us, though. It teaches us this, that part of God's people, part of the story of God's people, always involves confession. Always involves confession. Interesting that that prayer we prayed right when we began, the prayer Jesus taught us, what are we, what are we praying? We pray that He would forgive our sins, our trespasses, our debts. We have different translations here. What, what trespasses is He talking about? The ones you and I commit against Him in our rebellion, idolatry, and therefore under His wrath, and we ask, would you forgive us of our trespasses? Would you forgive us of our sins? Now, how often do you pray that, by the way? As far as I see of the prayer... You pray it as many times, you pray it at the, at the same frequency that you need bread. That's how often you pray that. So I don't know how often you eat. But however often you eat, that's how often you pray that prayer. Give us today our daily bread. Now you don't forget that we also ask Him to forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Which means I know that I'm, I'm living with a bunch of people who also will sin against me too. Because we're a bunch of sinners. That's something. And then James 5.16 says this. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. There it is. Not if you have sinned, confess. No, but just part of, the, part of being in a group of Christians is that we confess our sins because we have sins because we still deal with the rebel, this rebellion issue. We still have in our flesh that tendency towards idolatry. If I told you a new iPhone was coming out this week, would you get excited? I would. Probably got a problem. You see? It, was that, it just happened that quick. 
All Apple has to do is tell me there's an event coming, and I get excited. Isn't that something? What's going on there? Well, there's a trend, a tendency towards idolatry. You ever been without your phone? How's that feel? Oh, don't answer that. I don't want you to be too convicted today. Here it is. Okay, so there's James 5.16, but here, here's where we want to land the plane. But there's always a glimmer of hope, because for God's people, it never ends with sin or wrath, does it? We always end in God's mercy. And there's this glimmer of hope. It's right there at verse 43. I, we intentionally stopped right there. Here it is. Let's put it up. Many times He delivered them. That's really where we go next week. He delivered them. In the midst of all our rebellion, all our idolatry, and sitting with God's wrath, there is this but God in His mercy. Now, again, you may think this is just well-worded and well-crafted. Guys, all I'm doing is reading the Bible and giving you the summary before I read you the Scripture. Everything I just said. It's right there in Ephesians chapter 2. Take a look. This is the Christian story. Ephesians 2, 1 through 4. We're just going to take the first part of verse 4. We'll read now the New Revised Standard Version. You were dead through the, trust, through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler, the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy. But God, who is rich in mercy. That's the end of the song. Now next week, that's literally where we go. We, we finish to the end of the song. But I don't want us to forget that with all the confession, we don't lose sight. That for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus, the one who now has Christ's righteousness, there's always a but God. And that's really good news. I am so glad I have not been left to receive all the wrath for all of my rebellion. Now, my rebellion didn't look too bad. Not, not in American terms. But you put my rebellion in front of a holy God, it doesn't look too good. Nor does yours. So what do we do with all this? Let's move quick through some application. And this morning, intentionally, I wanted to front load us with a lot of Bible, a lot of content. So the application, we're going to move through it pretty quick. Here it is. I think we have to confess our wandering hearts. I mean, literally, I just think we need to acknowledge that our heart still wanders. Like, do you always want to come to church? Really? I don't even always want to come to church. Surely you don't always want to come to church. Do you ever have days where you're just tired? Are you, the kids have been really bad and you don't want to come? You ever have those days? Yeah, I have those Sundays. I know, I'm the preacher. I'm supposed to be holy and never do anything wrong. Example A. For those listening, I just pointed to the communion tray that I knocked over earlier in the sermon. Yes, I always got it under control. And I know my heart wanders. And so there's this line and one of my favorite hymns, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, you may know it. Let's put it right on the screen. Love this line, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. You feel that? I think, it's, I think we need to acknowledge that we're not perfect. And maybe not that we're just not perfect. We're not good. 
To whatever extent we are good, it is what God is doing in us by His grace. That's a good place for you and I to be. It's to acknowledge that it is by His grace we keep walking. And whatever good keeps coming is by His grace. So we need to confess, my heart still wonders. All right, and then the second one. Here we're going to really get it on the ground. Admit when we're wrong. Admit when we're wrong. Now, wouldn't you love it if I just kept this in these high religious terms? If I just was talking about you and God? No. I'm talking about you and the person you live with. You and your co-workers. You and your children. You and the people you like. That's who I'm talking about. Here's why. Let's put this next slide up. A good way to learn how to confess our sins to God is to learn how to admit our faults to each other. It may sound really great to talk about confessing your sin to God. Man, we could probably all get on board eventually. But what happens when your spouse tells you you're wrong about something you're really passionate about? How do you feel then? Yeah. How do you feel when you get in an argument with someone and they make a valid point? You know they made the valid point, but you can't give up ground. You feel? You ever feel that? The people that scare me most are the people that can never admit that they were wrong. And i got some people in my life, they cannot... I, I haven't been able to see, get them to a point where they acknowledge they were wrong. That's a tough place to be. What do you say about people that don't admit they're wrong? You say, man, they're full of pride. But as Jesus teaches us, before we start calling out the speck of dust in other people's eyes, what do we need to look at in our eye? A big plank, this big log. This is a very difficult thing to do. Just yesterday, I'll call out one of my sons. He is... I won't say his name, but he's 13. <laughs> and they have to—they have lots of chores they have to do every day, and one of them is clean up dinner. Uh, and and it, he was getting caught in the in, in the temptation of the TV that was on because Michael was watching the TV, and then this 13-year-old got caught watching the TV too. And I said, "You better get in there cleaning." I'm not going to say it again. Well, caught him in front of the TV again. Okay, he did it again. I said, "You," and then I gave him one more chance, full of grace and mercy. And then he, he left the kitchen as he's cleaning it up. Pastor, I want to know, how are you doing? What, what's going on? You leaving the kitchen? I said, clean the kitchen. I said, you're punished all day tomorrow. That would be today. You're punished all day today. And I gave him a specific punishment. And he said, but you told me to clean up and I was taking this card that someone sent you back to your room so we didn't lose it. You told me to clean up. Yes, yes I did. And you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to buckle down and, and come up with a reason why the punishments, you know, w w was going to stick. But I had to eat my words and I had to apologize. Do you know what's one of the hardest things I do is apologize to a teenager? Because I'm, I'm usually always right. But there are these moments where I'm not. And if I'm going to train our children what it looks like to admit you're wrong, it's got to start with me and with Tess. And man, I hated the feeling. I'm telling you, I hated that feeling. To eat my words and reverse the punishment. And just so you all know, he's fine. There's nothing he gets. He has no punishment today. He's in the clear. But what I'm saying is the next time that someone confronts you and you know they're right deep down, but you just aren't going to give ground, 
just realize that's that whole rebellion, idolatry thing that every human deals with. So a good way to train yourself out of that by God's grace is next time you're confronted, no matter how bad it feels, go ahead and acknowledge they're right. Even if it's your enemy, acknowledge they're right and say sorry. It's a good place to start. All right. That's some application. So let's just nail next step real quick here. Confess a specific sin to God out loud and thank Him for forgiveness. Now that might seem a bit spiritual. But when I say specific, I mean literally specific. God, I'm sorry when I was angry today. No. What you say is, I'm sorry when I was rude to my spouse, when I used a explicative to tell them how, uh, how mad I was. I am sorry. And you get it out loud. You say it out loud so you can hear yourself say that. Because if you're, like, if you're like most people who don't yet have a seared conscience, you'll probably be embarrassed at yourself for saying it out loud. That's a good place to be. We all need a good dose of embarrassment. Because you're not nearly as good as you think you are, and nor am I. And so when we confess to God, start there. Say it out loud and be specific. Be specific. All right. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your mercy, but we do confess, and I do it generically right now, but we confess that we have a heart that wonders. We reject your goodness. We love our idols. But by your grace, you are transforming us, and in Christ there is no condemnation. So we thank you for amazing grace. But we do confess, and we confess every day, that we need the grace. Because left to our own devices, we would be very bad people. Thank you for loving us and having a lot of mercy on us. And would you help us have the same kind of mercy with those around us? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And so we pray that in the name of Jesus, our Savior. And together we say, Amen.